Gregory the Great. Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory I, 540 to 604. Gregory has been called the Doctor Contemplationis, the Doctor of Contemplation. He was a high Roman official from a very aristocratic family who became a monk, founded a monastery in Rome on the Chalian Hill, and lived as a monk, but then because of his connections and because of his abilities, he was kind of dragged into becoming pope, because the times were critical. They needed the kind of leadership that Gregory could provide. So very reluctantly, because he had to abandon his monastic life of contemplation, he agrees to become a pope. There's a very rich teaching on contemplation, as I call the doctor of contemplation. Gregory never writes a treatise devoted to prayer the way that Origen and Cassian and Evagrius did. So you have to kind of piece it together from his many writings, and that makes it somewhat more difficult. But he, too, was of key importance for the history of Christian monasticism and mysticism. A French scholar says... Benedict gave the Western monks their rule. Gregory gave them their mysticism. He's one of the most widely read, of course, of later mystics in the Western tradition, Protestants as well as Catholics. He doesn't give definitions of contemplation or sketches of the stages of contemplation, as we find in Evagrius. I would describe Gregory as giving us a phenomenology of contemplation, a description of how it affects and works in the life of the Christian, both the monastic Christian and also, I think, general, because Gregory insisted contemplation is for everybody, not just for the monks. Few phrases. Divine contemplation is a kind of sepulcher of the mind in which the soul is hidden. The human soul is lifted high by the engine of contemplation so that the more it gazes on things higher than itself, the more it is filled with dread. And why it lifts you up to dread is because the more you contemplate, the more you can also realize the awesomeness of God and the distance between us and God. So there's both a delight and a dread involved in contemplative practice when you practice this machine that hauls you up on high. The simple contemplative life, he says in another text, flirts only to behold its beginning. That is, the one who says, I am the beginning, as Jesus said in, in John 8. What Gregory does, too, is he locates contemplation within the whole history of salvation. And this is a new dimension. He says, you know, history unfolds in four great stages, all of which are stages of contemplation. In the first stage, Adam was the perfect contemplative in the Garden of Eden. He had direct access to contemplating God. But after Adam's fall, we no longer have access to contemplation. We cannot contemplate we cannot fulfill our destiny as humans. Here's a wonderful description here. The analogy he gives uh, to this is of a child being born in prison. His mother is in prison and a child is born in prison. He's never seen the light. His mother can tell him about the light, but he's never seen the light. And we're like that. We're like the child born in prison. We no longer have contemplative dimension. We can read in the scriptures that contemplation is possible. That's the second stage. The third stage is salvation. Christ restores the possibility of contemplation in this life. Not fully, because we're not equivalent to the way Adam was before the fall, but the contemplative restoration takes place as a preparation for the full contemplation to come in heaven. So the history of salvation in its four great chapters is the history of contemplation for Gregory.
It's storia contemplationis. Contemplation is therefore, since Christ restores us to the possibility, is always Christological. And it's also the product, it's pneumatological, that is, it is the product of the Holy Spirit acting within us. He makes that very strongly possible. Contemplation, he insists, is open to everyone. He says, well, contemplation is given to the highest, means the prelates, bishops, and priests. It's given also to the lowest, to everybody. And it's given to the monks, perhaps more often than others. But everyone should be a contemplative in some way, according to Gregory. It involves both internal understanding and love and desire. So both love and knowledge. And then he has some reflections on what I call the practice of contemplation. Contemplation for Gregory is what we might call a, a liminal situation. It's halfway between our experience in the present life and the experience in heaven. And it's always lived in the kind of polarity of the mutual interactive aspects of human life. Light and dark, sound and silence, joy and fear, satisfaction and hunger within and without, etc. So we can never expect contemplation to be perfect. As I said, it includes both dread and delight because contemplation brings us closer to God and we recognize how far we still have to go, but it also brings a kind of delight. And he's particularly important for trying to work out the rules of the relationship of action and contemplation. Fundamentally, these rules are three. Contemplation and action are good and necessary. All Christians must practice both. Contemplation in itself is higher, but thirdly, contemplation must yield to active love of neighbor in the case of neighbor's necessity. So those are the three fundamental rules, if you will, for the Christian life and how they reflect both on our activity and our contemplation. What I've done is very briefly introduce four key figures in the early history of contemplation, four figures that although they're far separated from us in time and in their context, I think re careful reading and meditation to see the wisdom that they have to give us. Thank you.